Welcome to Season 3 of How About We Do This Together, a podcast of the Northwest Christian Network. Season 3 is based around the 2023 Northwest Christian Convention, happening in Turner from July 27th to July 2nd. Follow the link in the show notes to register before the convention and to watch the videos after the convention is over. I hope you enjoy today's episode as we talk about how we can do this thing called the church together. Well, welcome. I'm with Genesis Christian Mediation. Um, We're a firm we're based in the Portland area. And as uh, Matt said, we do a variety of work. Um, We're a very collaborative firm. Um, We partner with churches, counselors, other communities of faith. Um, wherever there's conflict. Uh, If I were to break it out in a percentage of the work I I do, I spend about 45% of my time saving marriages and helping restore families. Um, So I work and manage uh, therapeutic separation, so in-home, out-of-home, or high-conflict couples. Um, The other 25% of my time, I do work in peaceful marriage dissolutions. So I try to set up when divorce can't be avoided, I try to set set up a program, especially when kids are involved, um, where the parents can be good co-parents and minimize the impact on their children so that it doesn't become a generational thing. Um, And then the other 30% of what I do, 35%, is church and nonprofit work. Uh, So I travel all around the Western United States working with denominations and different churches that are in conflict. I manage uh, pastors' uh, performance improvement uh, programs, do HR work, uh, in mediation, you get, you get thrown a lot of stuff, and so you have to wear a lot of different hats in that. Um, today, um, everything that we do, we run through kind of a four-phase process. You know, we ask ourselves in any situation, what do we need to do to start repairing uh, the relationships, repairing the damage? Uh, because without some measure of repair, we can't move into any kind of resolution on any topics or items. Uh, when we've reached enough repair and we'd be able to, to begin to resolve some things, um, we can get closer to reconciliation. Because reconciliation isn't just something that happens when you move, when you forgive someone, right? There's a lot of trust that ne- needs to be restored. There, there might be issues that need to be resolved or coaching or things like that. So once we've resolved enough issues, then we can move into reconciliation. If we're lucky enough as a firm, we sometimes get to participate in restoration. And what restoration means is when forgiveness and reconciliation has occurred, it's moving back into the phase of relationship uh, that God intended for that community or for that family, right? It's, getting, it's moving forward in health um, where, where perhaps the, the damage of the past isn't impacting the current or the future as much uh, anymore. So that's kind of how we approach things. Um, today, um, we have a lot of different content that we can cover. And, and Matt asked me to focus really in on equipping churches and people who are leaders in churches to kind of work through and spot conflict and what to do about it. So we're going to spend our time in a few topics called the nature of conflict. We're going to talk about the difference between alignment and collusion. And then we're going to briefly look at how to assess conflict within your church organization. Does that work for you guys? All right, I'm going to throw, I warn you, this is going to be a fire hose. I'm going to give you a lot of information 
I'm fairly interactive, so I might ask for questions, so speak out if you, if you, uh, if you have an opinion on a question I ask or things like that, and, I, and we'll all get along really well. Okay, here we go. Nature of conflict. Um, as mediators, um, we often get asked what's our ideology or kind of what's our, our philosophy behind what we do. And if you're familiar with counseling uh, terminology or, or uh, wording, we would align ourselves with the idea of attachment theorists. And that is that we are born and created for community and attachment um, with people. And primarily, counseling theory tells us it's our primary caregivers once we're born, right? And through the lens of that attachment that we have with our primary caregivers, we then experience the world, right? So attachment has a huge impact on our lives. And we see this everywhere and all the time, especially in organizational conflict. People bring their family systems in with them, right? Their experiences of relationship the ability of whether to listen or not listen well, right? The ability to manage conflict, that all comes from the experience they've had through the lens of attachment in their family of origin. And so when we, when we navigate conflict with a group, we're always looking for where is this kind of coming from? Is this a system issue, meaning church or community or organization, or is this a family of origin type thing where it's coming from the family unit? So unless we identify that, it's really hard to move forward in resolving conflict if we don't know where that pain is coming from. Conflict's really interesting. Um, when I sit in a room uh, and mediate and uh, trying to save a marriage, it's often that I'm gonna get pulled into um, a fight, right? Because I, I always tell people, Please, bring your fights here, right? We're going to sit in the room and work through them together. Uh, but it's really interesting to me to watch two people fight. What usually, and, and you, you're probably going, what? I would never want to do that. Yes, I, I could understand that. But what's really interesting to me is that in the midst of these, these fights, uh, there inevitably comes a moment where I ask a single question. I, I look at the husband and I say, Hey, do you think your wife loves and cares for you? The answer is usually, well, yeah. And I ask the wife, do you, think, uh, do you think your husband loves and cares for you? Well, yeah. So thinking about that, how could we do this fight, this problem, how could we do that differently? I have not been in a room yet where that didn't change the nature of the, the conflict or the argument. So it's really interesting to me, in conflict, we forget who we are. We forget our identity. We also forget the identity of the, the other person. And so when we're reminded of that, it changes things. And we see that, we see that in scripture. Does anyone know that one by heart? Genesis 3, that's where um, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and when they did, they discovered, oh, wait a second, I don't have any clothes on, I'm naked. So then they found some leaves, put it on, and when God called out, they were like, uh-oh, and they went and hid. Yeah, see, and what boggles my mind when I read this is this is a couple of people who were walking with God in the garden, probably just the other day, maybe even hours before that. Yet all of a sudden, God calls out, and they take off. Help, I'm, I'm afraid. 
right? Conflict, right? They forgot who they were. They forgot that, that, was the, that God was the guy or the gal that walked with them um, just that very hours or day before, uh, but they forgot about that, and they, were, they hid because they were afraid. That's what conflict does to us. So as I was saying, when we remember who we are, our values, our needs, when we remember those same things about the other person, it changes how we view things. Can anyone read, I'm going to pass the mic, uh, here's James 4, 1 through 2. Can anyone read the message version? Anyone willing to read that for me? Anybody? Oh, here, I'll give you the mic. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and like and fight for it deep inside yourself. Is that it? Yeah. Thank you. That's the message translation of James 4, 1 through 2. Would anybody be willing to read the NIV version for me? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. So according to these, these verses up here, different translations, where, do, where does conflict come from? Ourselves, right? Desires, right? Okay. Now, is, is our desires or needs, wants, are they always sin? No, right, right. Sometimes they are. Um, so what, what's interesting to us um, is that the first step, the first where conflict comes from originates, it's our own desires. And we know if those desires are sinful, what that's going to lead to, the scripture tells us a bunch about that. Uh, but when they're not sinful or um, you know, something that's leading us to an obvious, you know, answer of where this conflict's coming from. They, when we have needs and interests, when, we're, when they're unheard, what usually happens? We usually yell a little bit louder, right? We get a little bit more demonstrative about it. Hey, over here, I need something. Or you're not listening to me. I hear that one a lot. You, you can't hear what I'm saying. Well, those desires then become demands. What happens if, if those demands continue to go unheard or unmet? That's when pain starts happening, right? Well, that's where division starts. And we start to cause disconnection in our relationships. And if enough division and disconnect happens in the relationship, that's where you get into, you just start destroying things. Organizations, churches, marriages, families, right? When that balance tips that direction. Uh, so when we walk into a church um, or an organization, we, we are looking to assess at what level 
are these conflicts? Are we, in, are, we, are we just dealing with demands? Are we dealing with divisions? Or has there been destruction? So is conflict good or bad? Depends on the outcome. Yes. Good answer. Anyone else? Conflict, good or bad? I'm sorry, what? It can be strengthening, yes. It's an opportunity. Why do we like to put a morality, like a, a value judgment on conflict? It doesn't feel good, right. We, we, we're a type, a group of people, usually, at least in Western culture, that like to have right or wrong, or good or bad, right? Well, in mediation, and we would encourage you, we, we reframe the way we look at conflict. We take value and morality judgments out of it, and we ask, is this conflict bringing connection or disconnection? Connection being uh, a bond, strengthening of a bond that where you feel seen, heard, understood. Um, disconnection is the opposite, right? Where, where there's damage or division um, to that bond. And when sin's involved, yes. Does conflict become good or bad? Absolutely. But often fights and conflict don't start out in a, I guess, demonstrable area of sin. So this is a a illustration of conflict. So the boats are positions. And right in the middle is you've got this iceberg, right? So everybody's starting off with their position on a topic or an issue. Like, well, I think the dishes need to be done every day. No, I think the dishes should be done every other day. Uh, right? So they've got these two positions over dishes. Right? And when each of them start to feel unheard, those desires of how they want to do the dishes become, start to become demands. No, no, no. This, this is the way it needs to be done. The counters are a mess. We've got to clean these things every day. No, we don't always use dishes every day. The counters are fine. Right? So there's a little clutter. It'll be fine. We, we can do them every other day. And over time, those demands, that's the gravitational force, as you see in the picture, that keeps bringing them closer to the iceberg of, of conflict, where the damage and division in the relationship start happens. This happens over and over, this cycle, over and over again. And you can spot it in any conflict that you're involved in or that you're, that you're watching, right? It's usually about two different positions that are having an impending clash, right? So when we train mediators or we work with churches in, in training their staff or, or lay boards to work through conflict and to, and to stop it before it starts, we talk about getting to the hopes and fears, right? Hopes and fears are another name for getting to needs and interests, right? So what's your hope for this, for this problem or topic? Well, um, the person who wants the dishes washed every day, their hope is they want a clean kitchen, right? They want to be able to 
get the dishes clean, put away, use them again. What's the hope of the person who wants to wash dishes every other day? Well, they, they too want a clean kitchen, but they just don't think it takes work every day to accomplish that, right? What's their fear? Well, not having enough clean dishes or a clean kitchen. So you could say that both of them had very similar needs and interests, but they had a different practice of how to accomplish that. And that's what conflict management is. It's about getting off of the positions, getting to the needs and interests, and then negotiating how to accomplish those common needs and interests. Every conflict has these, right? It's just trying to figure out, especially the more people involved, the harder it is to figure out exactly what those core needs and interests are to help them align in that. Every, I, I don't think I've been in a room yet where there hasn't been some kind of common need or interest. So let's talk a little bit about alignment versus collusion. When you see the word alignment, what, what does that mean to you? Getting it in order? Okay, I saw somebody in the back say something. Together, walking together. That's great. Yes, that's, that is very true. What else? Going the same direction? Okay. What about collusion? A smack of the hands, right? Okay, impact. All right. What else? Manipulation. So collusion has a negative connotation to it. Okay. Anything else? Alignment or collusion? Go ahead. What's the difference? It seems like the, the word collision and collusion are similar. Yeah, that's a great, a great point, a great observation. Scheming. Yes, scheming. Planning, intentionality, there's a, there's a sense of intentional thought or movement in the word uh, collusion. So this is a quote from a book called The Anatomy of Peace by the Arbinger Institute. Um, they go in and, you know, into the nitty gritty of conflict and what starts wars and, and how people navigate that and why conflict is... Uh, colludes on itself. And this is a, a statement they said, we might disagree about a lot of things, but how we do it makes a big difference. If we start seeing each other as objects, we'll get to the point in which we need to see each other as disagreeable rather than simply disagreeing. Then we will provoke the other, in the other person the very things we complain about. So conflict collusion can be defined as where conflict starts partnering with itself to keep it going in a vicious circle and loop without break. Over and over and over again without, unless there's intentional and specific means of trying to break that cycle. So this is what it looks like. And I'll use an illustration. How many of you have children or grandchildren that love video games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna play a game here. My son, 
He's 12, going to be 13 in August. He's at camp this week. Um, loves the game, a game called Fortnite. Anybody familiar with Fortnite? Yeah, a few of you. Man, I, I wish that game wasn't invented, but it is, so we work with it, right? But he loves Fortnite, right? And, and like a caring father, at least that's what I tell myself, I believe that, that he shouldn't be playing Fortnite eight hours a day, right? I should have screen time limits to help his health, right? It's good for him to have limits on video games. Well, as you can imagine, he doesn't see it that way. No, he doesn't like video game limits, dad. What are you talking about? This is how I play with my friends. They're all on this game and we talk over our headset and, and we play hours and we hang out, dad. Don't you get it? He says that, don't you get it? When I was growing up, when we hung out, we went out to the nearest, closest, largest expanse of grass we could find and we played wiffle ball. And all the kids in the neighborhood came. So it, it boggled my mind when he first told me about that, right? So I established limits. Son, you can't have more than two hours of Fortnite time each day. Pretty reasonable, right? A couple hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't see it that way. So inevitably the moment came where I had to enforce my screen time limit. So I went to Braden. It's his name, and I said, Brayden, you're, you're at the end of your screen time. It's time to get off. What do you think he thought about me in that moment? Go ahead, name it. Evil, what else? Unfair, what else? Uncaring, too strict. I don't understand, that's a great one. You don't understand, I don't understand. Oh, all of it. Yep, yep. And insert a few more after that. So what do you think, if he thought, had that view of me, how do you think he reacted? Defiant? What else? Anger. Yes, he got angry. Was he, do you think he was quiet about it? No, he was very loud. How could you, Dad? What are you doing? How You don't get it, right? So in his reaction, what do you think my view of my son in that moment was? What? Spoiled, yes. Defiant, what else? Entitled, oh, great word. Entitled, yes. What else? Unreasonable, not listening, here we go again. I mean, you, we're, we're all parents. We've been there, we know how we're feeling. How do you think I responded? <laughs> my temperature went up, Don is very correct. Yes, my temperature went up. What else? I doubled down, you bet I did. Oh yeah, I was like, oh, so you don't like rules and you don't wanna listen. Well, son, if you don't get off, you're not getting Fortnite tomorrow. How do you think he viewed me in that moment. The very same way he viewed me the first time, but it just kept going. That is conflict collusion. It's where when conflict happens because of our perceptions or even assumptions about the other person, it sets in motion a chain reaction of response. That person responds to those assumptions and perceptions. 
then I respond to them responding, right? And it creates this vicious circle that doesn't stop until I realized what was going on. So then I, I had to take a break, right? I had to step back and say, okay, what's really going on here with my son? He really is going on. And so I asked him to pause the game and we sat down and talked about what's going on. Why are you so angry with this rule? Come to find out, he had started around with four friends that were hardly ever on the game. I don't know if I believe that one, but it, that's what he told me. Uh, and it was so important for him to finish because he would look, he didn't want to look bad in front of his friends for leaving the game. So I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't stopped and asked him more more information what's going on. And, and that's the only way really you can break conflict collusion is to drop your reaction and start getting curious. So when we talk about alignment, which is getting out of collusion, we talk about, we're trying in a church setting where it's about worshiping and living in the same direction of your congregation or community, right? So how do we get to alignment? We talk about a few things. The first one, is awareness, especially self-awareness. What are you bringing into the mix in that moment? What's going on inside of you? Why are you angry? What's bothering you? What's the issue to, uh, it, as you would describe it, right? Because being self-aware, you most definitely cannot get out of conflict if you are not able to understand the impact of that conflict that it's having on you in that moment before you even respond in it, right? The second thing we talk about is in order to reach alignment, you have to be not defensive. Um, familiar with Dr. John Gottman, anybody? You may have heard the name. Well, Dr. John Gottman is the He's probably the premier researcher into um, marriage from a counseling perspective. Um, and he says one of the four things that kills marriages um, is defensiveness. He call, calls them the four horsemen. Uh, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling are the, the death of any relationship, right? So whether it's organizational or personal, we have to approach conflict with a non, from a non-defensive posture. Yeah, the four ones, criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. The next thing and how to, how to get to alignment is, uh, is a, from St. Brene Brown. I know I put a saint in front of her. Um, she's amazing, but she, she talks an awful lot about the idea of curiosity. When you think of curiosity, that word, what does that mean to you? Looking for information, openness, there's something I don't know. Wanting to know, that's a great one, yeah. If I had, if I had approached my son with curiosity at the beginning, I may not have gotten into conflict collusion with him, right? So yes, the, one of the greatest antidotes to conflict is curiosity. When you're willing to approach someone uh, from the perspective of curiosity, um, you will largely be able to avoid conflict. 
uh, because you, uh, someone said it, openness. It's like having your hands open as you walk into a, a situation or scenario, realizing you may not have the right perspective or the perspective uh, that they share, right? The fourth thing that we talk about is, this is a big one. This is the hardest one in the room because when I talk about a word called validation or alignment, people often think that it requires agreement. Oh, if I'm gonna validate someone's opinion, doesn't that mean I have to agree with them? No, no. Validation or alignment do not require agreement, right? Validation and alignment is simply recognizing and acknowledging that someone has a different perspective from you, and that's okay. I'll go back to John Gottman again. He says, in a healthy marriage, there might be up to 60% of the topics or situations within the marriage that are unresolved at any given moment. Disagreement is healthy. Conflict can, be, can bring connection. But if we, if we approach it from the standpoint that we have to agree on everything, we're only setting ourselves up for disappointment and pain. The last thing, alignment often needs space. There's another commonality of conflict and that is speed. Conflict likes to go fast, really fast. One of the first things that we deal with and work with in a conflict situation, especially in a marriage, is to slow things down. And so when we talk about space, we talk about timeouts. Um, even in a church office, if we have conflict amongst staff, we talk about, hey, it's okay to say, hey, I need to take a pause and I need to go kind of process this and can we, can we loop back in on this topic tomorrow, right? So space is required to reach alignment, and we're defining alignment again as moving in the same direction. One thing that's crucial about the request for space, if you ask for space, you need to be the person to re-initiate uh, uh, conversation. And that's, because that builds a trust loop in the idea of space. If you're the one saying, hey, I'm not ready to talk about this, but the other person still is, they need to grant you your request, but then you need to show that love and respect back to them by reinitiating the conversation on that topic. Right, right. That's a great point. Otherwise, it will be seen as withdrawing. And withdrawing over time creates an aura of stonewalling, which is one of the four things that really kills relationships in, in any context. So some simple practices that align with this. The first one around awareness is coming to uh, grappling with that phrase, this is not about me. How does that change how I'm approaching this right now? The second one, that the idea of not, not being defensive. This person across from me, my spouse, my coworker, my friend, they are a person of worth, a creation of the Lord. How does that change my mindset? The next two, again, curiosity. What might it feel like to be in their shoes right now? I wonder how they're thinking about this situation. What's their perspective? 
and then not agreement, how best can I validate how much I care about this person or how much God cares about them? They sound so simple, but, but truly in the moment, they're tough. They're tough questions. But they bring about such profound change. That's one of the benefits of conflict, actually. It's change. Are you with me so far? Okay. Um, so we're going to move now into uh, some assessment. And this, again, is targeted for those of you in church leadership or whatever. So we're going to talk about what to look for and how to, how to navigate conflict within your, your church community. Winston Churchill quote for you. True genius resides in the capacity for evaluation of uncertain, hazardous, and conflicting information. So when we look at a conflict, um, when my firm comes in to evaluate, um, we, look to, we like to use a, a kind of a barometer to identify the different pieces of it. It allows us to kind of assess the situation, figure out all who's involved, the proximity circles, and, and what to do about it couple things to keep in mind um, is every situation is different um, and we don't have an approach uh, like a, a playbook where we come in because sometimes that playbook may not be relevant to that situation so we have to customize and if as you work to resolve conflict you'll find you'll have to you'll have to customize your approach often the second thing to think about is we recommend that every church or denomination in some cases have a conflict process, um, a guide that helps them manage conflict in a, in a connective way, right? Many churches don't have that. Okay, so when we look at a, a barometer, we use yellow to, to define as low or moderate level of church conflict or community breakdown. Orange is moderate level, and red, of course, is high level. When looking at, at, at yellow um, and tying that back to the four Ds of conflict, this is really where you've got some desires that are kind of starting to become demands. One of the first ones is there's a conflict on staff or the elder board or the mission board, right? and it's hampering effectiveness. People aren't getting along, they're not able to accomplish the goals they have set out um, for, that, for that quarter, that year, um, and it, the conflict doesn't seem to get resolved. It seems to be present and pop up in a, in a variety of, of ways and situations. The next one, um, no covenant or conflict process, so you get folks that come in in the congregation that are concerned with something or have an opinion on what should be done differently, um, that festers and doesn't get addressed because there's no process with which to handle conflict, right? And then it becomes, they start talking to their friends who then talks to one of the board members who talks to another and you know, it just spirals at that point. Um, another one, competing voices over praxis. That would be the, ex the execution, the application of doctrine and theology. Um, social issues um, and in ways that are threatening to divide. We see that a lot, especially in mainline churches. Um, arguments over the LGBTQ movement, um, schooling, pol politics, I mean, you name it. Abortion, all kinds of things. And 
This has divided a ton of churches, right? But the interesting thing about it is that um, many of the churches that this division happened over these social issues didn't look to start having conversations early about it amongst and getting their groups together. There's a few successful organizations that managed it pretty well. They started, it took them two, three years of having conversations to come to resolution over the topics, right? So it's a process and, and sometimes, we, you know, life is busy, right? So we get going in, our, in motion and, and sometimes these conflicts just kind of start simmering beneath the surface and we don't see them, we don't pay attention to them. So they sneak up and we're like, oh, it's here, right? Uh, and then lastly, um, we see this as a lot as well, transitions. So in between pastors or changeover and staff, right? Uh, especially um, when there's been a lot of pastoral movement or pastoral movement after a long-term pastor. Those two transition areas usually are pretty ripe for conflict. Um, so being aware of that and having a process to kind of manage that or prevent that is crucial in those times. So when we talk about orange or moderate level conflict, this is when demands are starting to become divisive. So the first couple here, staff, this reoccurring conflict, somebody's talking about leaving. And in these cases, sometimes the congregation doesn't even know this is happening. I'm working with a church in San Diego where there was conflict between the entire staff and the lead pastor and no one outside that staff or their uh, lay board knew about it. Um, and then I just spoke to that pastor. The pastor has a conflict with someone. Reason why you don't see pastor in the first one is because usually if the pastor has conflict with someone, it's a little bit more elevated because he's the, he's the lead dude or, or gal in some cases. Okay, and then we here we see those social issues again. This is where those social issues are now not scattered conversation, but they're starting to form groups and tribes around these issues. And they're starting to align and or triangulate with each other, trying to jockey for who's right or who's wrong. And then here, back to the transition, you have um, conflict on the in, in the midst of transition, either between staff, between the pastor and the, and the congregation. Um, there's conflict happening. And, and so if it's not dealt with, usually that conflict has carry over to the next staff um, uh, especially if, it, if the congregation's involved in that conflict to any degree. Okay, these are the high-level high, high level ones. And I'm sure that there's more on this list than what I put, but these are, these are kind of the fruition of some of those areas of conflict we talked about earlier. Um, staff or board members are leaving. Like, they're not talking about leaving, but, but they are leaving, all right? Next one, um, the pastoral conflict is causing also, we have a staff member leaving because usually lead pastors don't leave over conflict unless it's with congregation or whatever. So usually the staff member is the one um, exiting. Now here, the social issues, they move from just scattered conversation to tribes and groups. Now congregants are leaving the church over the issue. Transition difficulties, multiple conflicts with pastors, 
um, the board disagreement on who they want to bring in. You have certain elders that want one candidate and other elders want another. And so they start talking about it and it, it kind of blows up. Um, and then here's another one. Infidelity, um, porn addiction, pastor present, um, unfaithfulness, um, sexual harassment. Those are big ones that if, if they're there at all, they're red level. So when uh, setting up your process or, or working with these things, there's really three things that we recommend before you call a mediator. And that is the first one is establish a checklist of kind of how you're going to operate the process so that everyone's understanding. I can't tell you how many times we get called in by a church and everything is asunder because there was no process established. So everyone feels like the lack of process has let everyone down, right? So set up the playbook, set up the process, get a checklist so that everyone's on the same page of the, of the steps you're going to take to resolve the issue. The, oh, sorry. The, the uh, okay. There we go. The next thing, interviews. So critical when working with conflict is have one-on-one -on -one or, or three-person conversations. That way there's always a, um, someone else listening to keep everybody um, honest, right? Third party, right? Uh, so set up interviews. Uh, and that's fact-finding. Interviews should be all about listening and not responding or trying to prove a point or, or convince of a side. They are simply to gather information. And then after that interview, compile all your notes and hand off to whoever's going to work with you, mediator or if you have a, some, uh, some denominations have uh, conflict teams they've set up uh, that they'll have come in and try to work with stuff preliminarily before they get a mediator in view, involved. Um, or if it's a small church, um, your elder board, before your elder board kind of takes over, compiling all that information is so critical. Questions? I'll open up for Q&A. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, Working with a church in San Diego right now, we got called in because there was staff and lead pastor conflict um, for the whole staff. They, the entire staff was women and the lead pastor uh, was a male. And um, there was accusations of emotional abuse, stonewalling, manipulation, um, a lot of the buzzwords in today's culture. Um, so first thing we did was we interviewed about uh, 25 people um, all the staff lead pastor, their lay boards, um, the denomination superintendent. Uh, we interviewed everybody to kind of get the lay of the land. Um, we then came down and found um, that the staff complaints were, um, were founded, right? So then we had to, after listening, bring people together for listening groups. Listening groups are kind of the first step of mediation if you have conflict that you can't just bring everybody into the room all at once. So you set up listening times with groups to try and get harmony within that tribe or that group like 
uh, a lay board or the staff itself um, or with the clergy members, right? And the lead pastor and the district superintendent. So individual listening pods to try and gain some kind of clarity within those groups. Um, after that, we had to recommend um, a performance improvement plan uh, for the pastor. Um, three of the staff left. Um, the other three were still working on trying to keep. We had to give them a leave of absence for a couple weeks um, to give them time to, to process it. Um, and we've had to set up mediation between the staff. That denomination has something called a lay um, HR board. So their HR function is done by a group of congregants. Um, so we had to set up mediation between the staff and that group of uh, lay leaders who handled HR because there was a lot of conflict and tension there. We will probably be working with that group for probably another six to eight months uh, in trying to resolve the different pieces. But that's, a, I guess, a short, a short version of a long story to kind of give you an example of the process. So in that denomination, it's not so clear because they had never written him up. They should have years ago, right? Um, because they never had, they have to do that process and then their bishop will decide um, if he's going to stay or be moved to a different congregation. It's most likely that after his improvement plan happens that he's moved to a smaller congregation because that was part of the problem. I think his skills weren't, he just didn't have the capacity to manage that size of a, of a congregation and staff. Any other questions? They're, they're hard, right? Um, so the Quakers did by far the best job that I've seen. They, t they went through a three-year process of internal listening and conversation led by their, their Northwest clerk. They eventually split um, over the issue, but it took them three years and they had intentional conversation and groups that, you know, to form to kind of in, uh, investigate the concerns and kind of bring them all up. But they did, did it over a course of three years. Anyone else? Yes. Uh huh. Most definitely yellow, right? By the time we get to red, there's 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 destruction. Oh, the question was, um, when do you want? When do we want to be called into a situation? It's a great question. We always get called too late, so we say when something's yellow so that we can help you. Prevention is much less costly. So to give you a dollar idea, the church that we came in red will probably spend twenty dollars to $30,000 before it's all said and done. If we would have moved in when it was yellow, they're probably looking at two to five, depending on how much like coaching and training is necessary. So it's always better to move in pre preventatively than to wait till it's a mess. Other questions? Yes. Mm. 
uh, she said she's sitting over here thinking about her experiences at ministry and feeling a little anxious uh, because it would take up to three years for churches to, to heal, right, to love each other again. It does take time. Anyone else? Well, this, this same process is applied to marriage and relationships, right? So we use about four different assessments when we work with couples, uh, prepare and rich, conflict style, listening skills, uh, and the Enneagram. We use that to kind of bring in some um, tools, so to speak, and then we put them through relationship boot camp, which is how to learn how to better communicate, resolve conflict, and listen. Uh, but when we do that, we work in partnership with their church because we found pastors have told us, like, when we send people to counseling or whatever, we never hear back. We don't know what's going on. Sometimes they leave. We don't know. So we try to keep the pastor involved through releases of information so their spiritual mentors part of the journey, and we also loop in their counseling team, right? Because we want to work ourselves out of a job. So um, we try to get the other pieces uh, of care involved so that that relationship has the best possible chance to, to succeed. Any other questions? I think my time is coming to a close. Thank you. Thanks very much. This episode was produced by the Northwest Christian Network. Theme song is Simply Beautiful by Scott Riggin. The Northwest Christian Network is a network of Christians and churches gathering together to serve the kingdom and cast their net across the Northwest. Find out more about our ministries and events at www.nwchristiannetwork.com. I'm Matt Holmes. Thanks for listening.